You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. For nearly 20 years, David Kilgore has been outspoken about the human rights abuses and organ trafficking in China. He questions how the IOC could award the Olympics to Beijing a second time. When he and David Matos were asked to investigate allegations that the organs of Falun Gong practitioners were being harvested, the disturbing truth was revealed. Then Kilgore and Matos co-wrote Bloody Harvest, the killing of Falun Gong for their organs. Mr. Kilgore is a former member of Canada's parliament, having served in the House of Commons for nearly 27 years. As Secretary of State for Latin America and Africa, from 1997 to 2002, and Secretary of State for Asia-Pacific from 2001 to 2003. Prior to his political career, he was a prosecutor. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by the Taiwan Elite Alliance, which was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese-American arts and literature and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom, and democracy of the people in Taiwan. Now, without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Kilgore. Very good to be here, Felicia. Thank you so much. I read your article that recently appeared in the Ottawa Citizen, uh, The Winter Games, why we're calling them the Genocide Games. So I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about that and the related work that you've been doing. Can you tell me why you wrote that article? It's probably the most hideous thing that a government has done that I'm aware of anywhere in the what, 195, 196 countries. As you know, for example, with the Falun Gong community, way back in 2001, when was the first evidence we found that they were taking organs from Falun Gong prisoners of conscience who were sent to these forced labor camps without any kind of a hearing, appeal, process, simply a policeman's signature. And they were sent to these camps to make consumer products for the West during the day when somebody... Uh, arrived from New York or Ottawa or somewhere else for a, a, an organ tourist, if you like, who needed a new heart or a lung or something. They would go to the uh, number one people's hospital in Shanghai. They would come in and take their blood type, and their tissue type. Then they would uh, go into their database and see who was a match. At the time we were doing it back then, there were we estimated about 300 plus of these work camps. And only the people in the work camps who were uh, Falun Gong Mm-hmm. were examined by doctors every several months, and their eyes were looked at, their organs mm-hmm. were looked at. Mm-hmm. They didn't care about their health. They wanted to see how good their organs were. And as you probably know, Falun Gong don't smoke or drink, so they were uh, good candidates for to be, quote, donors of organs. So when this terrible day came for the donor, somebody would come into the dormitory, grab them, give them some potassium, would take out the organs that they wanted to sell, and then the pilot from the People's Liberation Army would fly the organ to Shanghai. It would be transplanted to the person in the hospital there, and they'd come back to New York or Ottawa with a new kidney or liver. And minus uh, prices were huge, but you know it might be sixty thousand, it might be seventy thousand dollars. Very mm-hmm. very expensive organs. But there's only one place in the world, to my knowledge, where that's happening, where the government is running a a business out of people's vital organs, and that's, uh, of course, China. Now, the Nazis didn't do that. I don't think they had the technology then, but even the Nazis didn't do that. But the government of China is doing this uh, to its own prisoners of conscience. But just to, sorry, to finish it up, mm-hmm. the, uh, the next group, of course, was the Uyghurs. And they were, uh, well, I guess there were about 12 million of them living in Xinjiang. And uh, we've had all kinds of evidence. There's even a, a line at the airport in the capital city of Xinjiang, mm-hmm. where it's a, there's a special line for people coming for organs. So they go down a special line and they go off. You mean the people that are arriving to get a transplant, like they're looking for a transplant? Uh, that's my understanding, yes. And it, this has all been Enver Toti, for example, who's a Uyghur surgeon, now lives outside of China, mm-hmm. has documented this. He took a photograph of So did some Japanese tourists took a photo of this thing. Of the sign in the, in the airport. They took a picture yeah. of that sign. The speed line for organs. The Uyghurs, of course, as, you, as you, I'm sure you know, is, is, what, 12 million Uyghurs? Mm-hmm. So that I don't know how many of them are in prisons or waiting in these concentration camps. 
for the same process that happened to the Falun Gong. But I'm, the tribunal in London, which reported quite recently, uh, talked about that and, and concluded that in all likelihood that was happening. Mr. Kilgore also talked about the peaceful rally that was organized in Ottawa to protest the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. It was only a, about a half an hour long. And we knew that we had to be very media focused. So we had one speaker from the from the Tibetan community who was extremely moving. So was a speaker, of course, from the Falun Gong community mm. and then from the uh, Uyghur community. And we also had someone from the Hong Kong community too. And all of us who care about human dignity and human rights were, were just appalled that this would uh, this would could be going on in in China and Hong Kong, of course. So we. Um, we decided to do this uh, about a month ago. We've been planning, and I think it came out extremely effectively. Um, we were wondering if the some people from the embassy were going to come out and try and break up our peaceful rally. The important thing is we were doing it in the name of Canadians, all Canadians, 37 million of us, and that these four communities that I mentioned were, of course, important parts of the Canadian whole. So we're doing this as Canadians, not as Uyghurs. But it's interesting, the groups organizing this rally were, the first ones were Uyghurs, uh, people of Jewish faith, people of Christian faith, and of course, people of no faith. So uh, it was a Canadian thing. It wasn't a Uyghur thing or a Falun Gong thing. And I think it went very well. We sure got a lot of honks by people driving by the embassy. Well, we had it at noon, Ottawa time, on the 4th, which was just about the time that the games were opening in, uh, in Beijing. Horrible things are happening in Hong Kong, and uh, as you know, and this is a government that wants the world to respect it. You know, we, we, have, we have enormous respect for the uh, people of China. You do, I do, everyone does. And it makes me deeply upset when I see people of origin in Asia being harassed in San Francisco or New York or Ottawa or something. Mm-hmm. And it's so unfair, and it's it sh- should not be happening. It's the government of China, un- the non-elected government of China, that's doing these inhuman things to their own citizens. Right, that's an important distinction. And China's claim on Taiwan has forced Taiwan to compete in the Olympics under the awkward, problematic name Chinese Taipei since 1984. And I'm wondering, like, how did you get involved with this work? How did you first hear about the forced organ transplants of the Falun Gong? Well, I was an MP for 27 years. Yes. And from Edmonton. And uh, Falun Gong practitioners would come up and they'd ask for a meeting and they'd explain to me the things that I, I could barely get into my head. It was, it was so appalling. More and more of them started coming and uh, had big demonstrations on Parliament Hill and finally, after I stopped being a minister, minister of state for Asia Pacific until 2003, then I had more time to look into it. And then in 2006, the International Coalition to Investigate the Persecution of Falun Gong asked uh, David Mavis and I if we would investigate what was going on. And we agreed to do so as human rights people. And uh, we did a six-month study. And we were dumbfounded to find that this was true, that it was going on. We did phone calls to hospitals and jails and work camps in China. We didn't do them ourselves because we don't speak Chinese, but we, <laughs> right. we got independent interpreters mm-hmm. to verify that what these interpreters said was correct. Basically, what they were hearing at jail after jail or work camp after work camp was that, sure, we've got organs for you. Uh, and, and if people said they wanted Falun Gong organs because they didn't smoke or drink and were young and so on, they would say, oh, yes, we, we can get those for you. And we've got those conversations taped. We put them in our first report, which came out in 2006. And you can see it on my website, just david-kilgore.com. Mm-hmm. And then uh, eventually, 2009, we wrote a book called Bloody Harvest. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, uh, I guess a couple of years later, Ethan Gutman did a book, which was very consistent with what we had found. And finally, the three of us, did a massive update. I think we looked at 700 hospitals around China, and uh, we were just dismayed that it was really it was 60 to 100 thousand of these transplants were being done a year, and it was a major business in China. And uh, of course, they were denying it all along. Mm-hmm. They said they were only doing it to convicted capital offense prisoners. Like that's okay. <laughs> I mean, they, they, it was absolute nonsense. But. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Then they tried to say it was they were getting volunteer donations. Well, I'm wow. sure you know that the culture in China is such that people don't donate their organs mm. and still don't, I believe. Mm. So in our update, we have, uh, I think it's four or 500 pages looking at all these hospitals. And the evidence is overwhelming that uh, this is what's happening. And then the uh, task force, independent tribunal in London, mm-hmm. under Sir Geoffrey Nice, mm-hmm. came along with and said, uh, 2019, that yes, indeed, this was happening to Falun Gong. Mm-hmm. And they called it a crime against humanity. Mm-hmm. And they've also done one more recently, as you know, on the Uyghurs. And they've mm-hmm. come to essentially the same conclusion. So about nine or ten countries now have, have laws which ban their citizens from going to uh, organ tourists, they call it. Canada is close to the point of bringing in that kind of legislation, but unfortunately they haven't done it yet. We keep lobbying and I'm hoping they'll do it very soon. Taiwan is one of the few countries, along with Israel, Spain, Italy, Norway, and Belgium, that has legislation banning organ trafficking. It's beyond... You know, it's above most people's imagination that this could be happening in the world. You've spoken to some doctors who've done these transplants for the PRC. Could you talk about that? Well, yes. Yes, indeed. And one example of that is uh, Dr. Toti, who was a, a general surgeon in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. And he was told one day that he was to be at, a, at an execution ground the next day with a van and a nurse to assist him and so on. As he said, he was young and very naive. So he went... Sure enough, when he heard the, the shot fired, he went over and found that the person who had been shot, uh, well, I guess it's your heart's on your left side, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, and so he he uh, shot through the right side of his chest. So Dr. Toti had to take his heart, some other organs out, and take them back to Aramchi. He very quickly realized what kind of an inhuman conduct was going on here. So he he fled the country and he went to uh, he went to London and he's been campaigning against this now for uh, oh I guess about ten years. He's mm-hmm. a very effective person mm-hmm. and he's a Uyghur himself, so he knows uh, oh, really? he, he knows the language and he knows the culture and he knows he knows just how badly the government of China has treated the Uyghur community. I don't know whether your listeners know this, but one Uyghur person I know in Canada told me that when she went to study in in, uh, in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. The day she got to Shanghai, she went into a shopping center a few days later, and she saw somebody watching her when she went in. And a few minutes later, she heard an announcement on the public address system saying, ladies and gentlemen, guard your wallets. A Uyghur has just come into the store. Oh, Can my. you imagine? And, and uh, this is the way she was treated the whole time she was studying in Shanghai. You can imagine how smart she must be. Wow. To uh, She speaks six languages, by the way, but... She, she managed to graduate, and now I'm delighted to tell you she's living in Canada. It's, it's capital R racism mm-hmm. for the Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the Falun Gong, of course, were completely sort of representative of the population as a whole. Mm-hmm. I guess there was no racism involved in that. But their crime was that they, uh, they believe in truth, compassion, and forbearance. And truth does not take you very far in the Communist Party of China. Mm-hmm. So what happened was that the... Uh, and we. <laughs> David Maitis and I have looked into this a lot. Falun Gong started in 90, 1992. Uh-huh. It grew so quickly, as you probably know, that mm-hmm. by the end of the 90s, there were between uh, 70 and 100 million people doing it, doing these exercises, gentle exercises every day in every town square in, in the country. And the numbers were rising so quickly that the leaders of the Communist Party decided they had to stop them or they were going to be more numerous than the Communist Party. And also they didn't like their, their beliefs like, like truth and compassion. Mm-hmm. So they suddenly became an enemy, an enemy of the party. And so that's when the horrible persecution began of Falun Gong. So it's a long history that has no parallel perhaps anywhere, but it's one that I don't think Canadians or people in Taiwan or in other countries uh, can stand for. It's just contrary to every value that people in democracies and rule of law democracies believe in. Right. It was very hard for me to understand what the issue was with the Falun Gong. And I remember going to see the Shen Yu Spectacular, which happens in New York around the same time as the Rockets Christmas show and learning about this and just scratching my head and wondering, what does the PRC have against this group? I I just don't understand. But I guess the power of people organizing in such a massive scale is very threatening to them. That's the only thing I can fear. Numbers and values. That's, uh-huh. They didn't like the numbers of them, and they didn't mm-hmm. like the values. Mm-hmm. But they've, right. uh, right. as you know, they're in, I guess, 100 countries now. Mm-hmm. Very large in uh, 
places like Canada and mm-hmm. Taiwan and other democracies. Right. Can you talk about some other cases or evidence that you have about how the Uyghurs have been persecuted in China? I guess I'm a volunteer advisor to the uh, two Uyghur organizations, okay. International Help for Uyghurs and also to uh, Uyghur Human Rights. Mm-hmm. And we have, uh, we have heard many stories around the world people can get out. Um, one of the things that's hard to understand is how the Uyghur people who've been living there for thousands of years, they, they call themselves an indigenous people, mm-hmm. how they can be treated so uh, so cruelly. I, uh, I remember the first time I went to Beijing, I was referred to the People's Cultural Commission. And I think, I think it's 54 different communities in China. Mm-hmm. And I remember this man was wearing a, a Tibetan hand, the head of this commission. And he was trying to convince me that everybody was treated well. Imagine wearing a Tibetan hat when you're visiting a stranger, telling them that the Tibetans are well treated. Huh. So I uh, I learned a lot more after that, and I learned that, uh, as I'm sure you know, that uh, some committees, the Uyghurs communities, the Uyghurs, the Falun Gong, I guess those two are probably treated the worst. Could you share more about what is known about the plight of the Uyghurs? Well, yes, there have been, thankfully, there have been hearings in the Canadian Parliament. There have been hearings in other parliaments. There's now a growing record of how hideous this treatment is. We've heard stories of uh, real stories by victims themselves, not secondhand, how women have been have been raped by guards and had forced abortions. People have been sent to work in forced labor, slave labor, mm-hmm. in both in Xinjiang and other parts of China. We've pushed hard in many countries to get laws passed which ban goods made by slave labor. The United States has actually quite recently has gone further saying you have to convince people when you bring a product into the United States that it was not made with slave labor. If you don't, the good doesn't come in. Mm. I'm uh, simply appalled that so much of the wealth in China has come from the consumers in the West. Why we can allow our citizens to buy, I sometimes pick on Volkswagen cars, because a lot of them are made in Xinjiang. Maybe you didn't know that. I, I just can't believe that Volkswagen, given its history under the Nazis, how the Volkswagen cars could allow them their products to be made in, in Xinjiang by forced labor. I'm told the reality is that if they stop making cars with forced labor in Xinjiang, they'll be thrown out of China completely. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't forget how many plants they have in China, but it's a lot. And it's, it's absolutely beyond comprehension to me that that Volkswagen should allow uh, their cars to be made by forced labor in, mm-hmm. in China. We were protesting outside a Volkswagen plant yeah. not too long ago. And mm-hmm. if you're worried about being sued or something, just cut this part out. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, and uh, we put it to them. This is why we're here. Uh-huh. They know why uh-huh. we're there. Uh-huh. And they uh, they pointed out to us uh, that not a single part to a Volkswagen car, as I recall, is made in Canada. Oh. Canadians are supposed to go out, or Americans are supposed to. I think actually some of the Volkswagens are made in America. But mm. in, in the case of Canada, why would Canadians want to buy Volkswagen cars made in some cases by forced labor in Xinjiang? Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, anyway, and believe me, Volkswagen isn't the only company. Sure, sure. So we're trying to get them all to stop doing this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we're making some headway. Mm-hmm. Plus, yeah, it's, it's a long, long list of hideous things that happen in the, to both Falun Gong and the Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, I should have said the Tibetans, but that's been going yes. on so much longer. People yes. tend to forget about that. Yes, yes. Well, I would hope that most people do know about what's happening in Tibet, but you would be surprised that um, some people, I, th- I feel like the Uyghur issue is just recently coming more to light because I did have an episode where we talked about this and I had some listeners say to me, I didn't know about the Uyghurs or what's going on there. Yes. And recently Trevor Noah, who does the Daily Show, was talking about it also. But I only feel like pretty recently has it been a mainstream issue. Yeah, it's it's most unfortunate that the uh, the mainstream media hasn't been more helpful on this. Some of them have. I hasten Mm -hmm. to say it, honestly, the... uh, some of the media have been very helpful, but mm-hmm. some of them have been very silent on the issue. Yeah. Thank you for doing it, by the way. No, it's my pleasure. My podcast is all about creating awareness and educating my audience about different issues related to Taiwan and, and the and social issues in general. So regarding the Beijing Olympics, there have been uh, quite a few countries that have announced that they're going to do a diplomatic boycott. What do you think of that? How effective are diplomatic boycotts anyway? 
Well, ooh, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> a diplomatic boycott is better than nothing, but a full boycott would be better than... Now, people are going to say, well, what about the athletes who train for so many years and work so hard? Mm-hmm. The real problem, of course, is the International Olympic Committee. Why would that group give the, the, the Winter Games to, to China, mm-hmm. <laughs> given what is very evident now to anybody who, who takes a few minutes to look into the subject? Why would the International Olympic Committee be so focused on money that they'd give the Games to, uh, to Beijing again? Mm-hmm. Uh, remember when they did it in 2008? Yes. They were going to improve human rights. And they were going to do yes. this and do that. And uh, I think it's fair to say that everything's gone in the opposite direction under Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the game should never have been given to uh, to Beijing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, they have all these half-cocked arguments about why uh, why the Beijing was a good place to give the games. And uh, I'm, I'm told it's the least watched games ever. Oh, so then there. Hopefully, people are aware of these issues, and that's impacting the viewership. Yeah. I think it is. I know mm-hmm. I have friends, for example, who say mm-hmm. I'm not going to watch any of these games because mm-hmm. I uh, don't want to encourage these monsters in the uh, government right. of China who are doing this. Yeah, yeah. I also understand there's some other issues with having the games in China. There's some environmental impact, and they're talking about whether or not there's enough snow for a lot of the games, and where's that snow going to come from? Can you imagine? No, but no visitors are allowed to come. And you look around the stands, and you can see maybe their tenth of the seats are taken. But the only people watching the games are Communist Party members mm. or government employees. Well, there's an Olympic bubble due to COVID. And apparently there's an app that people are using at the Olympics, but the app tracks things on people's phones. And even after it's removed, the phone might still be tracked. Yes, I've heard that too. And yeah. I believe it. Mm-hmm. But it's completely contrary to the spirit of the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'd think the Olympic Committee would have enough decency or enough principle or enough something that they would find somebody other than Beijing as a place to the whole the games that are going on now. There's like also concerns about the free speech. Certainly the athletes there can't say anything. They've probably been warned not to say anything. <laughs> oh, indeed, you're absolutely right. My my hero, my new hero is the basketball player from the Boston Celtics. And as Cantor, we actually spoke about him on an episode. He actually spoken up about Taiwan and he's also spoken up about the Uyghurs. I saw him the other day interviewed on CNN. Yes. His T-shirt said, Taiwan is not part of China. That's right. That man is, he's correct, of course, but he, what an incredible person he is. I just yeah, can't you, tell you how much I admire and respect him. would love to meet him sometime. <laughs> As I spoke with Mr. Kilgore, he praised how Taiwan has handled COVID. If the rest of the world, including the World Health Organization, had followed Taiwan in dealing with COVID, we'd have an awful lot less ruination and deaths. And, and I, of course, everybody knows, I hope, what Taiwan did when they stopped allowing people to come from, from Wuhan mm-hmm. and from China. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result, they kept the, the numbers down enormously. In the case of Taiwan, I think it was it's both a blessing and a curse because the Taiwanese are very, very aware of what's going on with China. So I think that's why they had some intelligence and some foresight to see what was going to happen, have the travel restrictions so early on before um, it became globally known about this whole the COVID pandemic. When was the last time you visited China? 2003, I went with a trade mission with the Gretchen government. Mm-hmm. Of course, I wasn't allowed to raise any of these issues like human rights or persecution of the uh, Falun Gong. Yes, I've checked this quite carefully. The, the first known case of a uh, Falun Gong being killed for their organs was in 2001. And the, you probably recall, do you recall Annie and her husband? Annie and her husband lived in a place called Sujiatin, and her husband was an eye surgeon. And he was ordered by the uh, 610 office, that was the office running the persecution, mm-hmm. to take the corneas out of the eyes of Falun Gong practitioners oh. for transplant purposes. Mm-hmm. So over a two-year period until uh, 2001 to 2003, as I recall, he removed the corneas of about 3,000 wow. Falun Gong practitioners. Oh, my goodness. Huge number of people. Yeah. And then after he took the corneas out, in the hospital in Sujiatin, mm-hmm. they would go into another room and someone else would take out the lungs or the liver or the kidneys oh or whatever. Goodness. So he finally couldn't sleep. His wife was getting really upset at this. 
and two of them left Sujiatin, and uh, Annie came to the States. Mm-hmm. She gave that famous press conference mm-hmm. in Washington, mm-hmm. and her, her husband went to another country as a refugee. I, I, I won't mention mm-hmm. the other country. Mm-hmm. I don't think it really matters. Mm-hmm. They took with them the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of U.S. dollars, because he was paid very highly for these operations. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're both gone from China now. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, We've learned, of course, that the pilots got paid flying the organs, the Mm -hmm. surgeons, the nurses, the hospitals. Mm -hmm. It's an immensely profitable business for uh, for the government of China. And uh, there's no longer any free medical care, as you probably know. I know of one case where a young boy was injured in an accident. His father took him to the local hospital. And uh, they said, if you can't pay for this, we're not going to treat your son. So the son and the father had to leave the hospital. Oh That's how, how cruel the medical system is. But it's making all this money f- from organ transplants. Mm-hmm. And, and that's uh, turning the hospitals into profit centers for the government of China. It, it's quite fascinating because, as I, I think I mentioned before, the, the government actually liked Falun Gong. And for from about 2000 and, no, 1992 to June of uh, 99, you were allowed to do the exercises anytime you wanted in China. I'm told he could even go into the consulate in New York City hmm. and do the exercises in the consulate, mm-hmm. I guess, in the winter. Mm-hmm. So there was very good will by the leaders of China then. But uh, as I'm sure you know, Jiang Zemin mm-hmm. declared war on them. That's a, as I was explained before, it's basically because there were so many of them. Yeah. And he, uh, he didn't like their values, mm-hmm. particularly the one about truth and compassion. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, it, it got... Uh, Turn, overnight, it turned from being the government loves you. Partly the reason the government loved them is because Falun Gong were healthy and they didn't need med- much medical treatment. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a uh, war was declared in June of '99, mm-hmm. and they they started throwing thousands of them into prison. Mm-hmm. And um, then the first record we can get of killing Falun Gong for their organs was in uh, 2001. I'd heard about it from constituents, from people in Ottawa, mm. from people around the country, letters. I was mm. hearing about it from a lot of people. Mm. But being a being the Secretary of State for Asia Pacific, I was not allowed to talk about that issue, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. So my conscience has been bothering me ever since, so I'm <laughs> trying to make up for what I, sh- I should have done then. And now for a short break. We're proud to say that Talking Taiwan is now a 2021 Golden Crane Award-Winning Podcast. Talking Taiwan is a Golden Crane Award-Winning Podcast and the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast. We are dedicated to bringing you stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. Help us to grow and continue producing engaging content by making a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Talking Taiwan. And going back to the Olympics, some people have compared the Beijing Olympics to the Berlin Olympics in 1936. What do you think of that? I think it's a very apt comparison. One of the important differences is that 1936, as you probably know, we didn't know that there was a full-blown Holocaust underway in Germany or in related countries. And um, that's the Holocaust probably started in about 1936, 37 went on until the end of the war, until 45. But we do know that since 2001, there's been a genocide, if not a holocaust, against the Falun Gong community, against house Christians. Some of them have been killed. And now, of course, in the last couple of years, it's been Uyghur community. So we, we know now that there's a genocide going on in China, and yet we're still going ahead and having the games there. I mean, yeah, we learned nothing from the, the Berlin Games. Mm-hmm. It's very sad that particularly the uh, International Olympic community, which is supposed to stand for high ideals and people getting along and youth and mm-hmm. you know, sportsmanship and all those things, is so uh, short-sighted that it doesn't realize what it's supporting by having the, uh, the Winter Olympics in Beijing uh, on at the moment. Right. So what would you say to the average person that's hearing this and feeling like appalled and disgusted by the human rights abuses going on. What could an average person do about this? Get themselves informed. There are lots of websites you can go to, I'm sure, including yours, mm-hmm. mine or others, that you can get the basic facts. There are all kinds of newspaper stories have been written or 
reports published by the tribunal in London, for example, mm -hmm. and you can make an appointment and go and see your member of Congress. Mm -hmm. There's good bi-party support on this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, has been for uh, a good long time now. Go and see and talk to your member of, or member of Congress and say, what are you doing about this? Mm -hmm. And um, I uh, honestly, bless you, it just breaks my heart. But do you know how many jobs have been, manufacturing jobs have been lost since China came into the World Trade Organization in Canada? It's 600,000 jobs have been lost, manufacturing mm -hmm. jobs. Mm -hmm. In the States, I heard different figures, but uh, one of them was 54,000 factories mm -hmm. have closed with mm -hmm. something like 20 million jobs. Wow. It's yeah, a huge number Americans have lost. That's why we've got all of this, you know, all of this people in this in the streets and dissenting mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. protesting. One of the reasons is because so many people have lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. So how can we ship your neighbor's job or my neighbor's job over to China and not feel responsible for this? Can we pay a little bit more to buy a sweater or something that I'm wearing mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. made in made in US or Canada right. or many many other countries so it's been it's been uh, it's, some people have gotten very very rich out of this practice and uh, we know who they are and and some people have got very very poor because of it but it's no right. way to unite a country I wanted to ask you a little bit about your political career can you talk about how did you get involved in politics and get on this path of being a politician I was a prosecutor in Alberta in Western Canada mm -hmm. and uh, I'd always been interested in politics and uh, I uh, had a chance to run for parliament in 79 actually I ran in 68 in Vancouver and got defeated Mm. Uh, but I, in 79, I got elected and, and was there for 27 years. And I honestly, I enjoyed it. Every Practically every moment of it, I enjoyed it. You could be a voice for people. Nobody was could tell you what to do. If you didn't believe something, you could, uh, you could get up and say it. Finally, in 2006, I decided that 27 years was long enough. But mm. I've been busy since that happened, too. So I'm very, very lucky to have had such a, an interesting, active time. And I recommend anybody listen uh -huh. to us wants to go into elected office, please do it. You'll never find anything that's more, <laughs> more interesting. I'm recommending that to you too. <laughs> what, what, do you what is it that, what, that you uh, was so exciting about and what do you miss about it? It's really an honor to be able to go into your House of Congress or your Legislative Assembly or Parliament of Canada. Mm. And you can, you can learn a huge amount and you can, you can speak, you can get up and defend people with problems. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I used to do a huge number of immigration cases, refugee cases, mm -hmm. and you learn, you learn what you have to do, and you know what works and what doesn't work, and and so um, you can you can really help meeting this family on the street and having them say, listen, you brought you helped our uncle get refugee status here years ago is pretty is pretty darn good to hear yeah. compared to you know I, mm -hmm. I was a lawyer and I I did mortgages all day, <laughs> <laughs> so right. no, it's a I found it to be a fascinating career, and I'd recommend it to uh, mm -hmm. to anybody. Yeah. You're known to be very outspoken. I'm wondering, like, have you always been like that? Um, <laughs> growing up as a child, do you think that your family, friends, and family would be surprised at uh, how you ended up in your career? <laughs> well, my mother, this might you might find interesting. My mother used to say that, that there are two kinds of people. There are the suckers. And they're the duckers. The suckers are the ones who, who don't run away from the problem. They grasp, you know, they take the problem on and they deal with it, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, but they believe it. And the duckers are the ones who duck out and go out the door and avoid controversy. Mm -hmm. She always insisted that, David, make sure you're always a sucker. <laughs> and I think, I, I think I've followed her advice on that, if, maybe not some other things. <laughs> and she's right, too. It's... Uh, it's always amazing if you stand up for somebody or somebody or a principal, how well it works out. And uh, I've met some some amazing people, Felicia, uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. Amazing people, and it's been a huge honor to meet. That was one of the lucky things about being an elected person is you could meet these people. Mm -hmm. And you, you could travel, I think I've traveled to something like 120 countries. Of these people that you've met, any any particular person like left a strong impression on you? Or, oh. or it could be somebody that surprised you that turned out to be not like what you thought. I've met people uh, from so many countries and so many parts of the world. Uh, let me think. Um, one 
is a, uh, his name is Richard Pashkovsky. He was trained by the KGB in Russia. Mm-hmm. He's from Poland. And he eventually uh, got fed up with communism. And he, uh, he escaped from Poland, unfortunately, by hijacking a plane. <laughs> so he, but everybody on the plane with him, this was in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, when the plane landed in, in Warsaw instead of in wherever it was supposed to go, mm-hmm. everybody stayed. Everyone took refugee status. Oh wow! Uh, so I uh, I met him in in Edmonton, and uh, I wrote a book about him. Oh, I the see. The book's called uh, "Betrayal: The Spy Canada Abandoned." Okay. And he's now doing very well. His his wife's doing well. His kids are doing well. But he, uh, the government of Canada, tried to deport him for uh, well, I think it was about sixteen years. But we what? fought them every inch of the way. And eventually they gave up and they allowed him to stay in Canada. As a Why were they trying to deport him? Well, because he had uh, he had hijacked a plane oh, to right. uh, uh-huh. to get out of uh, mm-hmm. out of Poland, mm-hmm. and um, he claimed it. Uh, he had done things he shouldn't have done. I I looked at those very carefully uh, and felt no, this was just propaganda that they mm-hmm. were putting out mm-hmm. to try to hurt him. Mm-hmm. So we we fought them. Finally, finally, the deputy minister of immigration came and said he can stay. So, I mean, and there were many, many others, but you had to be prepared to stand up. Right. And sometimes you lost, but most of the time you won. Mm -hmm. I met so many fascinating people, uh, and I've I've enjoyed every moment of them. Right. And since this is the Talking Taiwan podcast, I have to ask you about Taiwan. How many times have you visited Taiwan in the past? Thinking about that this morning. Yeah. I think I've been four or five times. Uh And when was the last time? It was, uh, oh, it was two or three years ago. I went over to speak to a conference of some kind going on, and mm-hmm. I was one of the speakers and mm-hmm. uh, enjoyed it. I love Taiwan. The people are terrific. You're so hardworking, and you're so uh, you're so democratic, and you have a, a woman president who's <laughs> phenomenal. Uh, I think a lot of us would like to have her be prime minister of our countries, too. <laughs> no, I mean it. Seriously, she's a... I'm actually, I met her. She came here once to Ottawa uh-huh. years and years ago, and, and uh, I have, I'm a huge admirer of hers. And your democracy and, oh, everything you do is, uh, the way you give money to for COVID and things like this, For for you've done extremely, been very generous on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you gave things to Canada. <clears throat> Taiwan gave... Uh, Taiwan did a lot of mass donations, yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canada, uh, Taiwan is a model... A model democracy, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I have enormous admiration for, for for Taiwan and what it's done. As we spoke, the subject of Dr. George Leslie Mackay came up. I'll be interviewing Reverend Michael Stanton about Dr. Mackay in a future episode of Talking Taiwan. On March 9th, Taiwan Post will be releasing a commemorative stamp to mark the 150th anniversary since Dr. Mackay's arrival in Taiwan. I went to visit his school mm-hmm. and was I was just blown away by the school and the professors and the teachers and the students. So it's it's uh, just one of those many human contacts between yeah. Taiwan and Canada. Yes, he certainly left a lasting legacy. Could you share a bit more about any of your past visits to Taiwan? I was at the uh, at the Foundation for Democracy. Mm-hmm. You probably know that organization, mm-hmm. Dr. Michael Michael Cow. Mm-hmm. He was running it, and so we had uh, we had speakers from different parts of the world. I think were there. We all spoke about democracy, and mm-hmm. and uh, the National Endowment for Democracy was represented mm-hmm. there too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was a deeply inspiring visit. I can't everything from the buildings to the food to the people to the. I mean, it's all unique place, and uh, I hope you know that Canadians have enormous respect for. Uh, for Taiwan and the people of Taiwan. And as our basketball player said, mm-hmm. Taiwan is not China. One of the times that you're in Taiwan, we both happened to be there. I think that was 2014. That was yeah. the year that the sunflower movement happened. But I think by the time that you arrived, the, they had actually vacated the occupied legislative yuan. Is that right? Or did you? Uh, thank say, you did for you, mentioning that. Did I, you witness that? I went and spoke to the students. Yes. Okay. And, and yeah. it was fascinating, yeah. just fascinating. And seeing the way the uh, 
way they treated the students that were protesting. It's very interesting in what's happening now and otherwise. Are you following what's happening in, in Canada? Yeah, well, what's going on with the, the truckers, right? With the protests by the truckers? There's well, been a lot of coverage about that, saying that oh, they're paralyzing like Ottawa and the border between the U.S. and Canada. I think it's I think it's winding down. There were people who honestly didn't think they should have to wear a mask, and so they were they were protesting. Mm-hmm. There were lots of reasons and lots of protests. People came from across the country, and of course, we have the right to protest in a democracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> telling was telling somebody from Taiwan, <laughs> but but the uh, the problem was that they uh, they went beyond that, and uh, you can't. Uh, Ryan, the you know the trucks aren't going over the the international bridge at mm-hmm. Windsor and Detroit, mm-hmm. and that's causing huge problems for the economy. I uh, so they're blocking the bridge. Well, they were yesterday. I think things yeah. are, I mm-hmm. think things are moving today. But we've mm-hmm. got to we've got to end this quite quickly, hopefully peacefully, mm-hmm. because it's causing a, it's causing enormous harm to the uh, so many families that. Uh, you know, some of the some of the truckers have their children in their tank caps. Oh wow! And it's uh, it's very uh, very serious for well for both countries now. Mm-hmm. And I hope we can end it quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, the world is just too difficult a place now. So I understand that you've also met some other politicians from Taiwan, like the former president Lee Teng Hui. Do you remember meeting him and what your impression of him was? This was elected '96. I'm I'm a huge fan of his. And I, uh, I was so honored to go and sit and talk with him. And then we met, uh, we met in in Prague one time. He was over there for one of Václav Havel's conferences. Mm-hmm. So we met there. Oh no, he was so lucky to have him. He's a, he's an amazing leader. He really helped bring democracy to Taiwan, didn't he? Yes. Um, yeah. Because um, there was also some other social movements and student movements, like the Wild Lily Movement. And he was the first president to officially apologized for the 228 massacre, which was the uprising between the Taiwanese and the Republic of China forces. I understand that you're also very involved with the local community. I saw on your website that you're on the board for the Ottawa mission. Can you talk about some of the work that you do locally? Oh, you noticed that, did you? Yes. Well, I've been serving lunch at the Ottawa mission. I was thinking about this last night since 1989. Wow. But what's happened with covid is we're not allowed to go over to, to do that anymore. Sure, yeah. And I feel terribly badly about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, the mission does wonderful things. As you, have you ever seen it when you were in Ottawa? Yes, I have. But for people who are in the U.S. and not familiar, can you tell them what the mission is? It's for homeless men. Mm-hmm. And um, we have, uh, we've been going since, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 1906. Wow. So we, we've helped a lot of people and we, we help anybody without fear or favor. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. provide meals for a lot of the homeless missions downtown. Mm-hmm. The young people and I think the women too. Mm-hmm. We have a big kitchen that really produces a lot of meals. So, so how, how are they dealing with COVID now then? Well, I have to tell you, I'm not allowed to go into the mission because yeah. I have a health condition. Right. But, but and, uh, yeah. I think they're doing it as best they can. And they have, uh, I'm sure they're on skeleton staff and so on. Yeah. But they're, they're continuing to help them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, have a, we have a huge problem with homeless now. And as you probably notice, some of the people who came with the truckers were going mm-hmm. into the missions mm-hmm. and wanting food mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So that's made things difficult. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, I think it's, uh, it's an institution we're very proud of in Ottawa. Yes, yes. And uh, it's not perfect, but it's, uh, it does good work. And it does it on the basis of George Leslie Kahai. It's a Christian-based. Could you offer some words to inspire people? Like, why do you think it's important that people need to be informed or involved with social issues? That way we can help each other. If you know that uh, you pick up the paper and see that a a mother and daughter just come from, say, some country in Africa or in Asia or wherever, and they're having a terrible time feeding themselves, you know, you can go in your kitchen and get some food out of your drawer and take it down and give it to them. That's the way in a democracy life works. Of course, in an autocracy, somebody at the top, uh, uh, in fact, I was just reading about this this morning, uh, figures out a way of trying to uh, enrich himself or herself. I saw, for example, that in the National People's Congress in China, 
there are 91 billionaires. What does that say about a non-elected so-called assembly that has 91 billionaires in it? Hmm. Uh, I think that's, uh, they have about a thousand overall. But mm-hmm. what, what kind of a system of government is that? Yeah, and, interesting. Oh, I mean, it's so when you have a democracy, and it's not perfect, of course, but everybody yes. counts. And when you have a democracy, uh, er, er, anybody can, uh, can rise to be the prime minister or president. It's uh, most of the time it makes for a, lots of mistakes, but they make, we try to, democracies, as you know, we try to make uh, society work for everybody. And these days it's, it's difficult for, for COVID reasons and for, for the protester reasons, but most of the time democracy works uh, works pretty well. I'm hopeful that uh, once we start uh, dealing with some issues like why we should have so many billionaires, why are some people allowed to be billionaires when other people have barely got enough to, uh, enough to live? The topic of billionaire investor Chamath Palihaptia and his comments that he doesn't care about the Uyghurs also came up. He gave an interview where he basically said he just couldn't be bothered worrying about the Uyghurs. Oh, wow. And uh, it turns out, if I'm not mistaken, that his family originally came from, well, let me say, a country in Asia, okay? Okay. <laughs> and, he, and they came, eventually they came to Ottawa, Canada. Okay? Yes. He went to the same school that, Two of my daughters did. Oh. But but listen to what happened. Mm-hmm. He went down to the States, got mm-hmm. some degrees, some training in, in computers, mm. and he ended up in Silicon Valley, and apparently he was a billionaire. Wow. And he um, he owns part of one of the basketball teams down there. So, oh, boy. I hope it's not the Boston Celtics. He gave this interview oh, wow. about two weeks ago. Turns out that his company has now run like this on the stock market. Oh, really? Because he was not making, allegedly, he was not making correct statements. Wow. So the stock has gone way, way down. But uh, to think that this guy was a refugee himself, went through the Canadian system, the American system, made himself, Uh, I guess, for a while, a billion dollars, and then had the gall to say that he didn't care about the Uyghurs. Oh, Oh, that's very interesting. That's, That's really uh, interesting. That just shows you today the power of the internet and social media. You know, when people say things and then the court of public opinion will respond. <laughs> well, they, they sure did respond. Yeah. And he's now yeah. looking awfully stupid. Wow. And awfully insensitive. And I invite you to say anything if you would like to say anything that you don't think that we've covered, whether it's about the Beijing Olympics, your thoughts on China, something about Taiwan, or your work as a politician, especially since you were the Secretary of State to Asia Pacific for so many years. I I was honored to represent thousands of constituents from Edmonton for 27 years of origin in, in, in Asia. Yeah. And I have the, please... I have the utmost respect for people from well, Africa or any place. Yes. You don't say this person's from there, for, therefore they must be a good person or a bad mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. That's that's not the Canadian way, as, as mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, when I started doing this, I was doing it to help the people of China, of course, against government, a terrible government. Mm-hmm. But I never, for a second, ever had any bad feelings about people from China or other parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to help the, the people who are being persecuted in, in China or el- elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, so every time I people say, oh, you're, anti, you're anti-China, you're well, anti they don't say it to me, but I suppose some of them think it. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not anti-China. I'm anti-totalitarianism. I'm against people like Putin or Xi Jinping who, mm-hmm. who don't care a fig about the people of their country. They just want to get richer and get more powerful themselves. That's that's what's so wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's what my criticism is directed at, not at the people. Mm-hmm. Right. And I have to wonder who are the people that are saying that about you. Perhaps there are people that are in denial about what's really happening in China. I don't know. Well, we've, uh, we've noticed occasionally that uh, it stopped, thank goodness. But years ago, we noticed somebody would send an email, you know, you're just a stalking horse for the... Uh, CIA or something. That, thank goodness, is all gone now. But we know that that the uh, government of China has a large budget for propaganda in the West. And we know that uh, we, criti- we criticize them, I hope, with very good reason. 
So they, 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 I'm sure they try to. Sometimes we see comments saying, you know, Kilgore's this or Kilgore's that. And it's just, I mean, it's just nonsense. But uh, they do have a team of people. Uh, I mentioned to you before, we were afraid they might show up at the, uh, the Chinese embassy mm-hmm. on the 4th mm-hmm. of February. Mm-hmm. But nobody did. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I think they realize they've lost the debate that anybody who knows now knows that they're doing this organ pillaging for cash. That's the only reason they're doing it. Yeah. And it's it's got to stop. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, oh, no, we're, we're not, we're not going to give up. We've been at this for 20 years now, David Madison and I. What would you say to people who want to get involved with this issue? Please get involved with it. We have a demonstration every Thursday the Chinese embassy in Ottawa. Okay. There are demonstrations in consulates in the States, embassies, you know, Chinese embassies in the States and elsewhere, Europe. It, it's really helpful. And you'll mm-hmm. be surprised how many people, if you're holding up a sign saying, stop the Uyghur genocide, how many people who go by and see the sign and, and honk mm-hmm. to encourage you. Mm-hmm. We've been doing this now for, uh, there's a photograph from the, my website on, of this too. We've been doing it for probably six months now. And it's uh, every Thursday at uh, mm-hmm. four o'clock. It really gets to them. We're, we're pretty sure it really gets to them. Yeah, I want to thank you so much for all of your time and for all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for doing this, Lysia. I've been speaking with David Kilgore, human rights advocate, author, former Canadian cabinet minister, member of parliament, and prosecutor. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by the Taiwan Elite Alliance, which was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese-American arts and literature, and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom, and democracy of the people in Taiwan. If you enjoyed this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.